today. <clears throat> you will recall as a brief uh, review in Hebrews 4 that we're looking forward to a rest for God's people. We're certainly living in a world fraught with unrest, with war, rumor of war, disease, uh, fear on who's going to be the next maniac who cuts loose with a gun and kills a bunch of people. I read just this morning in the news that someone had left a bomb of some kind on top of a car at a casino in Las Vegas. The man reached up to take whatever it was off the top of his car and blew up and killed him. So are those things now beginning to move into this country? So it's not a peaceful time. It's not, in that sense, a good time. In the experiences of man, we live with all kinds of fears and dangers. But there is a peace coming. A time when the animals will all be at one and in accord and not eat, eat each other. There will be no such thing as a food chain as we know it. And you won't have to worry about whether the chickens or dog food you're eating are bad or good. There are a lot of people in America today eating dog food. So... There's a better time coming. So he urges us here to enter into that rest and that God's word is a sharp two-edged sword and it slices through all the baloney and gets right down to the truth of the matters and what we really are because God will not be deceived and his word will not go back to him in vain. When he casts his bread on the waters, it comes back to him and it comes back the way he wants it. And he is quite capable of putting us and the rest of mankind through whatever is necessary, even horrible death and resurrection, in order to adjust our attitudes to the point we're willing to accept not only him in name, but accept his way of life as being the only way that will produce peace. And we do have a thousand year period of time coming when there will be absolute peace. Free moral agency will still be there to some degree, but if you start to do something wrong, someone's going to say, hey, wait a minute, don't go there. And there'll be a constant reminder. And human nature being what it is, that will be necessary. Because we do want to stray in wrong directions. And we'll need some help to get past that. Even though attitudes have been adjusted, even without Satan there, human nature still will try to go a wrong way, give an opportunity. Well, God sees our hearts and minds and he knows. He ponders our hearts to see if we are equipped or are becoming equipped to rule peacefully, lovingly, kindly, gently, and yet firmly. He'll rule with a rod of iron and yet with a lot of mercy and compassion. The rod of iron is necessary but at the same time, he is merciful, clear to the bone. So he says, let's hold fast the profession we have and realize he was tempted in all points like as we are and therefore understands us and we can come boldly to his throne. We don't have to come crying and whining and mewling. We can come boldly and say, you've been there, you've done that, you've suffered, you've been tempted just like I have. Please have mercy and compassion and forgiveness, and we can count on that. The grace 
the pardon to help in time of need. Go on to chapter 5 then. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. So, though we have a high priest in heaven, he's recounting history here to show that there was another priesthood among men, and that they were there to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. God has always, throughout history, had human beings in charge. Now, the Father, the Son, or Melchizedek before he became the Son, was always there, ultimately in charge. But for his reasons, God had always made it that there would be men who also sin and have their own problems, who would be put in charge as shepherds, leaders, and guides to others. And that had been true, speaking to these Jews, uh, throughout their history. And even in the end time, we find that there is a high priest uh, in the church at the end. So, God has always done that and will continue to do that. Even though we do have a high priest in heaven now, there are still men appointed as apostles and prophets and so on, as was pointed out, I think, last night. He's always appointed men that may offer gifts and sacrifices for sins who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way. They've strayed perhaps out of the proper path and are out of the way. For that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. Every human being, save he who became man, though he had been God, has had his own sins, his own infirmities, his own difficulties to work through. It's never been any other way. So if you're looking for a perfect ministry, forget about it. <laughs> you know, we look for perfection and we easily pick at and find fault with, and indeed, that can be done. We've picked at Herbert Armstrong, we've picked at the ministry ever since, and unfortunately, there was plenty to pick at. And it got so bad that finally God began destroying the ministry. And he's not done with that yet. Somewhere along the line, people and ministry have to begin to truly seek God. And there should be those who can have compassion on us if we're ignorant or if we've wandered out of the path to help restore us and get us back where we should be going. The trouble is, uh, the relationship between the ministry and the people has become so bad throughout the church, and there is such a lack of humility in both the ministry and in the people, that if you do try to correct people, there seems to be so much pride, arrogance, vanity, and self-righteousness in the way that you can't even get through. The humility and meekness that needs to be there is so often lacking. So it's hard to restore someone to the path when they figure they're just as good as you is. Verse 3, And by reason hereof he ought, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer for sins. I know that if you do that, 
as you go to God with your own problems and weaknesses and faults before you go to correct someone else or guide them or lead them toward the right path, uh, it makes it better because certainly if any of us look at ourselves, it should make us meek and humble and ashamed of what we are as opposed to what we should be. And sometimes it's very, very difficult to correct someone when you know you yourself may have a similar problem or other problems that are just as bad. Verse 4, no man takes this honor to himself. God is going to appoint a high priest. He will do it. No one can put himself in that position of being, let's say, the final say, or I'm the one God appointed unless God is indeed done so. We must be very careful with that. But he that is called of God, as was Aaron. Aaron, God made it very clear he was calling Aaron to that job. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest. He came as a little child in a manger. He didn't make himself a high priest. And in fact, he did not assume that office in any official capacity whatsoever while he walked the face of the earth. His father raised him to that office by resurrecting him and glorifying him to be the high priest. Now, even though he may have carried that credential as he walked the earth, and even beforehand as a priest of Melchizedek, he didn't take it to himself. His father had made him the one overall, Melchizedek, and yet for through the 33 and a half years, he was here to humble himself, to be meek, and not to take office upon himself. Even when they would say, are you that man? He'd say, you said it. I didn't say it, you said it. So he was careful. You know, he didn't want to take something on himself where being a human being, he could have sinned. He could have failed. So why brag about something until it happens? So he didn't glorify himself, but he that said to him, You are my son, today have I begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's quoted from uh, Psalm 110.4. So God himself had told him that. He didn't have to claim that. Now he admitted it at times, when pressed, but he didn't go around flaunting it. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears to him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared. Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Christ was very, very wise. And he was tempted in all points like as we are. And he knew that he could give in. He knew of the possibility of failure. And that's why he went with prayer and supplication and strong crying, tears, 
to God that was able to save him from death. He died, but he was saved from death. He did not remain dead. Now, we as human beings are all appointed once to die. But we can be saved from that death if we go to our high priest, the Christ, the Savior. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. He didn't suffer from his sins. What did he suffer from? Two things come immediately to mind. He suffered from temptation to sin, because temptation is suffering. And he suffered from our sins. He wept. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief because of our sins. You know what's the easiest way to get rid of temptation? Do what you want to do. Then you deal with conscience, but before, but you're not dealing with temptation anymore. The easiest way to get over temptation is to go ahead and do what you wished. It's not the best solution, but it's the easiest. Sin now, repent later, you know. That's not what God would have us do. That's not what He did. So, He learned obedience by suffering through temptation and not giving in to it. And then he learned, as he watched people who gave in to temptation of all kinds and made a miserable mess of their lives. And he sorrowed over the pain and suffering that mankind brought upon themselves. Anyway, in verse 9, being made perfect or mature, he became the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. He is the captain of our salvation, as is put in another place. The author of it. The one who wrote it. He didn't plagiarize it. He wrote it himself. In tears and prayers. And a perfect life. Through that life, and through that perfect blood being shed, we also can have salvation. And freedom from death and freedom from pain. Notice it does say, all them that obey him. After all Paul wrote in Galatians, the people used to try to say, the law is done away or we don't have to obey. He writes here in a very plain statement, the salvation has to do with obedience. You can't have salvation without obedience. Now, through obeying, you cannot earn salvation because even as obedient as you might be, you will not be perfectly obedient. But he is more willing to forgive and extend grace to those who do obey than to those who do not. All goes back to attitude, doesn't it? I'm doing my level best and more through prayer and supplication to obey everything that this book says, every word of God. We're supposed to live by them all. And where I fall short, I need grace to help in time of need, and I can go boldly for that. Ask forgiveness knowing that it will be extended, because God will have mercy on those who seek to serve and obey Him. So it takes both obedience and grace. 
or works and grace. It's neither works or grace, it's both. I'll show you my faith by my works. Called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 11, of whom we have many things to say. There's a lot that can be said about Christ, and he's saying a lot in this book, showing who he was and how great he really was. And hard to be uttered, seeing you are dull of hearing. These Jews who were converted or already in the church in some cases, thought they had understanding which surpassed that which Paul and the apostles could give. And they didn't want to hear it. They were dull of hearing. I've heard that before. Or you guys are Johnny-come-latelys. We go all the way back to Abraham and Moses. So what can you tell us? For when, for the time you ought to be teachers, you have heed need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. Now understand who he's talking to here. He's talking to the Jews who had a long history who had come from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, through Moses, who were self-righteous about it. And they had the words of the oracles of God in the Old Testament. But had they been keeping them? Did they understand them? Did they understand the first principles of the Word of God? No, they didn't. You become such as of need of milk and not of strong meat. You may go all the way back to Abraham, but you need milk, not meat, he said. You don't understand what it's all about. Now, isn't that what Christ told the Pharisees? Yeah, you separate seeds one at a time, not even by the shovelfuls. One at a time you separate seeds. But you've forgotten mercy, judgment, love, the weightier matters of the law. The first things that God is about, they've forgotten. It wasn't a matter of this doctrine or that. They didn't know how to live a peaceful, happy, loving life in the way of God. Didn't know how to do it. Now, you and I could be in the same boat, couldn't we? We heard Herbert Armstrong, sometimes we recount how far back we go, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Maybe somebody around has been in the church by now 60 or 70 years. I don't know. That's probably pushing it. And we understand the basic doctrines, don't we? How have we learned to love? Have we learned not to backbite, to gossip, to put other people down? Have we learned to give and to serve? Or do we still live our lives pretty selfishly? Now, those are the very beginning principles. Or actually, the more, those are the weighty matters. A lot of people think Greek words are weighty matters. No, they're not. The really heavy things are learning to love and have hope and faith. Did Christ say, when I come back, will I find scholars who understand all the Hebrew and Greek on earth? It didn't seem to be important to it. 
He says, I want to find people who can live and walk by faith. No matter what men might do, they won't fear men. They'll fear me and trust me to take care of them. Now, that sounds simple, doesn't it? But boy, is it ever hard to do. We fear so many things. We're so insecure. We have trouble giving our health and wealth over to God, don't we? Because we don't trust Him. We don't believe Him. When He says, I am healer, we simply don't believe it. And He says, the reason we are sick and die is because we don't believe. It does no good to be anointed and have a prayer of faith if there is not faith involved. Or let me rephrase that, to be anointed and have a prayer if faith is not involved. Because he says without faith it is impossible to please him. And the key to being healed through prayer and anointing is faith. It is contingent upon faith. So we can say, well, I got anointed and I didn't get healed. Maybe our faith is lacking. Maybe we don't really believe it. We don't expect it. We hope. We wish. We think maybe. But do we really believe it with all our hearts? It isn't that God can't do it and doesn't care. He just wants us to believe Him. Now, that was quoted in relationship to the Passover. Uh, examining ourselves ahead of time and taking the Passover in faith. And because we don't really believe that the blood of Christ could cover our sins, and we don't really believe He can heal, dividing into two parts the body of the Lord, we go around with guilty consciences over past sins, and we aren't healed, and many are sick and sleep, because we have not come to the level of faith that is required for healing and salvation. Remember the little booklet, What Kind of Faith is Required for Salvation? The kind of faith where you believe with your heart that you can have salvation, and therefore you then do what? You get busy doing those things that lead to salvation living by every word of God, putting aside those things that are ungodly. So those people were having a problem, but I, I can't say we in the church don't have the same problem. When we should understand, and after 20, 30, 40, 50 years, you know, the longer you've been in the church, the less excuse you've got. People brag how long they've been in the church. Well, Somebody who's been in 30 years doesn't have years, has a lot better excuse than somebody who's been in for 50. You know? 20 more years to learn and do. It doesn't make any of us better that we've been there longer. 
probably been associated with the church longer than anyone here. It wasn't, that doesn't make me any more righteous or doesn't give me any seniority. All that means is God recognized I needed an early start. I still need to play catch up. Verse 13, For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. See, not in the word of doctrine necessarily, or technical understanding, but in the word of righteousness. Righteousness does not consider, or, or does not consist, of technical explanation of doctrines. Righteousness consists of doing what is right. Right, just. Living by faith. Loving, above all, and hoping in Christ. That's meat. That's the thing that's hard to chew. You know? What did we receive when we were doing the church? Let's go on, we'll see. Strong meat belongs to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use, or Mike Margin says, habit. Those by, who by reason of habit have their senses exercised to discern between good and evil. You know, when you walk through life without self-control and self-government, you tend to wander about a bit. And sometimes the line between right and wrong can become blurred. Because so much wrong goes through your mind that it's sometimes unclear. Or it's hard to get the mind on that which is right when the mind wants to dwell on that which is wrong. Habit of doing what is right helps you to see clearly the difference between right and wrong. So your senses are exercised. What makes a muscle stronger? Exercise. And that's what makes spirituality stronger, is exercising it, doing it, living it. So then he says to them in chapter 6, Therefore leaving behind, or not forgetting, is a better translation, not forgetting the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection or maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptism and of laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment, See, those are the milk. When we first came into the church, we had lots of little booklets about each one of those subjects, didn't we? We had a booklet called, What Kind of Repentance is Necessary for Water Baptism? Uh, we had books about law and grace and what the meaning of dead works are. We had What Kind of Faith is Required for Salvation? We had a booklet all about water baptism. And that included laying on of hands. We had booklets about the resurrection and the order of resurrection. We had booklets about God's judgment. Those are all things we were introduced to and learned when we were brand new in the church. We're not really going back, for the most part, most of us now, are we, in studying those little booklets? No, we learned those things a long, long, long time ago. What are we still fighting? Bad habits, bad thought patterns, 
mines and ruts that need to be jumped and go on to better roads. We're still fighting weak faith, lack of love, hope that is not strong hope because we're still struggling having not gone on to spiritual maturity or perfection. So it's the weightier matters, mercy, love, and judgment, that we're fighting, isn't it? It's not a matter of understanding water baptism. It's a matter of actually living up to the weightier matters of the law. That's the real meat. Now, people, they reverse that, though, don't they? They'll say, what are you talking about love? Why are you talking about faith? Why are you talking about all this thing? Let's get in here and find out what that Greek word right back there means. That's the meat. Now, that may be meat to them, but that's not spiritual meat. That's technicality. And it has nothing overall to do with righteousness. Righteousness is how we live, how we think. Not technicalities. Now it's good to get the technicalities correct. He said you should have been tithing of those things, but don't forget the big, weighty, important things. How often do we say, oh yeah, another talk about love. Another talk about faith. I've heard that. Well, why don't you walk by faith and love then? When are we going to grow to maturity in the things that really count? We can study technical things while we discuss other people's sins. That shows we're not even the first base spiritually. We haven't learned to love yet. So he says, let's not forget those things, but let's move on toward true spiritual maturity. Verse 3, and this will we do, if God permits. We live long enough, and <laughs> God permits it, we'll move on toward maturity, won't we? We don't want to be thought of as babes. I don't know how we mistranslate that. People think if they have all the technical understanding, then they are spiritually mature and they have all the answers. Well, that's not what it's about at all. It's about the weightier matters that we have not yet achieved. And then there's a warning here, verse 4, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and tasted of the heavenly gift, and were made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh, and put him to an open shame. How is it we go from learning the basic doctrines to hopefully moving forward and learning the weightier matters of faith, hope, and love, and mercy, and so on. The fruit of God's Spirit. And then maybe we get embroiled in some technical things that lead us away from the fruit of God's Spirit, and we lose faith, hope, and trust in God. Once you give that up, 
It is virtually impossible to restore it. We'll read about Esau later on in this book. Once you start to begin to trust God and grow in that direction, and then you reach something where you say, God doesn't answer these prayers. God doesn't keep His promises. God doesn't do whatever you think it was that God should do. I tried that and it didn't work. I tried trusting God for healing. didn't work. Is God unable to heal? No. But are we living and walking by faith? Real, living faith based on obedience to everything God says. It's not God that is failing to heal. It is we who are failing to truly trust Him. I'll trust Him to the point I get so sick I better go to the doctor. God says, you really trust me, don't you? Where does faith end and fear begin? Where does fear of God end and trust in man begin? I'll say this again, and I've said it before. If someone here is sick, and they say, will you please drive me to the hospital? I'll say, get in, let's go. I cannot legislate to you what you do, and I will not be judgmental in it. I will take you there. I'll hold your hand while you're there. But at the same time, I will instruct and teach so that hopefully at some point, all of us can come to the point that we have an overriding, powerful trust in the living God where we can just turn our life over to Him. It's hard to turn over health and wealth to God. He says, trust me for healing, it's hard for us to do it. He says, tithe and offer to me, and it's hard for us to do it because we can't afford it this week or this month, or this year, or this lifetime, whatever. He'll get to that a little later on, because these are a couple of areas that are very, very difficult for us. Hopefully, we'll come to the point where we're willing to trust Him in everything. Hard to do. doesn't come easy. As human beings, it's hard to trust and believe in something we cannot see. But he says, that's what it's all about. We'll read the definition of faith as we go on here in a little bit. Not probably today, but in this chapter. It has to do with believing things you cannot see. It's easier to believe the doctor. You can see him. Well, why should it be that way? Well, it really shouldn't. But it takes us time. We have to learn. Doesn't come easy. But don't we understand and can't we understand that's the direction we ought to be going in? How far short we are of it at the moment need not be judged by each and every one of us. 
Where somebody is in the path for truly trusting God is between them and God. So we need to support them. Doesn't he say, help the feeble, support the weak? Yes, he does. So if there's feebleness or indecision or questions, you know, a lot of times we want to trust God and and we just don't have it quite there. No matter what it is, when we're faced with trial, trouble, or tribulation, it's so easy to panic. But we need to be learning to walk by faith, little by little, in the small things, day by day. And then when big things come along, hopefully we'll grow to the point we don't panic. And we can trust God. So somebody says, well, I'm sick. I think I better go to the doctor. I could die. I'm not going to tell them, no, you've got to live by faith. How can I tell them to do something they are not at that moment capable of doing? So some of you might be judgmental of me if I haul somebody to the hospital. Well, why didn't he just teach them faith? Well, that's what I'm trying to do right now, is teach that. And I know, as well as I'm standing right here, that we're not all going to completely... Wouldn't it be nice? If we could walk out of here today and never waver, never walk off the path whatsoever, but walk out of here and completely trust God with every aspect in our life from now on. Marriage, health, wealth, happiness, children, you name it. Any and everything. Wouldn't that be wonderful? But I'm not so naive as to think that it's going to happen. We grow. And we too learn by the things we suffer, the mistakes we make. When we fail to trust God in some area of our lives, we shouldn't get discouraged and give up. We should simply say, well, I didn't have it that time. I'm going to work on it in the meantime. Next time I have a trial or a test or temptation, maybe I can leave it in God's hands. Would that we could all be to that point where if we kept our eye on Christ, we could jump out of the boat and walk on water. Wouldn't that be nice? Peter literally walked on water until he looked down and saw that it was water and looked at the waves and the wind. And he said, I can't do this. Scloop. End of the walk. Now we have a panicked, drowning sensation, followed by, help me! As long as he kept his eye on Christ, he trusted and believed that he could literally walk on water. The minute he looked down at conditions around him, I'm about to die! I'm going broke! My child's about to die! The minute we take our mind off God and look at the conditions, we sink. We panic. And in that sense, we fail. Learning to walk by faith is a very difficult road to go. It doesn't come easy for any human being. How much did God try Abraham? You see, it's that trust in God that we have to be careful we don't allow to be broken. Well, I've been in the church for 20 years, and I'm not perfect yet. 
I've been in the church for 50 years. I'm not perfect yet. What happens? There's no God. Why doesn't God give me a husband or a wife? Why doesn't God give me a million bucks? Why doesn't God give me a new car? Why doesn't, you know, why is my dog, dog sick? And on and on it goes. Why doesn't God give me all the things I want? Couldn't he just make me handsome or beautiful? You know? Why do I have to look at this in the mirror every day? Can't God change things? Well, yeah, he can. And he says he will in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. But you know, those things aren't what are important. Those are shallow. Christ spent 33 and a half years here on this earth with looks that might not stop a clock, but there was certainly nothing about him, Isaiah 53 says, that would make anyone desire him physically. He was not a handsome person. God made him more or less ugly on purpose. So that he could deal with that too. You know, it's, it's not fun feeling ugly. Or short or fat. It's not fun. Or stupid. I felt all those. I've never felt tall. That could be a problem too. God only gave me a Volkswagen and I'm seven feet tall. And I'm like, what am I going to do, God? Why don't you give me a bigger car? We can always find something wrong with what there is about us. And so often we try man's band-aids to try to improve our looks or our health or our whatever it is that we have a problem with. Yeah, he can fix all those things, and he will. But meanwhile, he has us deal with what we have to deal with. Now, dealing with ugly can be a problem. Dealing with being beautiful can be a problem. On the one, you feel insecure, unwanted, unloved, and ugly. On the other hand, you feel like a princess or a king or a queen. I'm really something. We have the same problems with mine. Some of us feel stupid, and all of us at one time or another probably have felt stupid. But then there are those who feel like they're pretty smart, and they're smug and vain and egocentric about it, and they're hard to live with that way. So it doesn't make any difference what we are. As human beings, are, it's, it's fraught with peril, trouble, and difficulty. But there has to be trust in God that he eventually can solve all problems. Now, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, David, various others, all went through all kinds of problems and were tried and tested. They had areas where it must have been very, very difficult to trust God that everything was going to turn out all right. Remember Jonah? I'm going to sit here and this gourd's going to grow up and I'm going to lay right here and die. I've just had it. Can't live anymore. Going to curl up right here into the gourd and die. I'm not going to go on anymore. I've had it. I'm tired. God's not answering my prayer. God told me to tell Nineveh to repent. And if I go preach this to them, they may repent. And I want them destroyed. 
He was in a royal bad attitude. God had his ways, didn't he? All right, roll around in digestive juices for a few days then. See if that improves your attitude any. They went through a lot. Now, you and I have some serious, serious times ahead. We are going to be hated of all nations and all peoples. The vast majority of the people on earth are going to want to see you and me dead as soon as possible. And they're going to do everything within their power to accomplish that. And if God does not take us out of this open, vulnerable valley into a secret place in the stairs that is safe, we will be killed. And not by people who like us. Do you follow that? Do we believe him? Do we trust him? Or do we live in fear? Oh, well, we need to fear God because he's the only one who can protect us, right? Well over 90% of the people on the face of this earth that are breathing today are going to die probably within the next 10 years. Let's push it and say 20 years then. Could be five, though. And us among them. Unless God protects us. Because we've set ourselves on a course. When we were baptized, we said, I will trust you with my life. I submit my life to you. It is yours. I have become a living sacrifice. If you want to make me a dead sacrifice, I accept that. We made a solemn vow to God before we went under that water. That water was symbolic of death. And the dead do nothing. The dead know nothing. So we surrendered our life. It held us under a little bit. We'd have bubbled our last and died right there, wouldn't we? But your life is not your own. It belongs to God. Do we believe that in daily life? It's a vow, it's a promise we made solemnly before God. Pay all your vows to God Most High. Don't renege on them. Christ knew that his life would be very, very difficult when he came to this earth and was born. A human being. But he had surrendered completely and totally to his Father in heaven. And he never gave in. That's the kind of life we're called to. That's the standard that has been set before us. We said, I trust you when we went under that water. I trust that you'll give me life. We came up out of that water. We had hands laid on us. We were given the Spirit of God, conceived inside us to grow to the point we could be changed into spirit beings and be God forever. That's the pact. That's the covenant we made with our Father in heaven and His Son, our Savior. 
Now, anytime we fear, and anyone, anytime we turn, anywhere else, for anything, we're breaking our vow to God. Our lives are His. If He chooses to let us die as martyrs, we do not have a complaint coming, do we? Hey, wait a minute. That wasn't in the deal. Yes, it was in the deal. You're mine. I purchased you with a price. I redeemed you from death. You're mine. How often do we try to take that back? Well, yeah, I, yeah, I believe this is your church, but man, this is my life we're talking about here. This is my health. This is my wealth. This is my whatever. That's my child. It's my husband. That's my wife. You see, in one sense, what we're doing, when we think like that, is we're falling away from the covenant and the promise we made with God. We're falling away from that. And if you get to the point that you have lost trust in God, it's almost impossible to renew it. For that which budded and grew in you to the point where you were willing to say, yes, I will give my life to you, and then you don't trust Him, and you take your life back, it's hard then to turn and give it back to Him. And the more often we fail at living up to our promise, the more the easier it is to continue to fail rather than follow through. We are not to live in fear. He tells us over and over, and we've seen that rehearsed several times in the last two or three days. Fear not. I am with you, says the Eternal. Be of good courage. Be strong. And work. So he... he implores us to be strong and of good courage and work, and he tells us not to fear. The basis of that whole thing is faith. Believe God will take care of you, that he'll see you through. All you have to do is obey him and work at this way of life, and everything's going to be fine. We're living in fear. We're not living in faith. The only fear we should have is fear to disobey God and fear that He will not then give us the things that He's promised if we will live in faith. You don't have to fear man. What did Christ Himself say? Fear not those who can take your physical life, but fear Him who can take your spiritual life, life eternal. We're not the fear of man. We have some things coming up right now in this little community that we could fear about. Are they going to come move us all? Are they going to come put Daryl and Marlin in jail? Are they going to put us all in jail? Are they going to come and shoot us all? I don't, you can take it anywhere you want in your fantasy. I'm frankly not too worried about it. I 
firmly believe with all my heart God moved us out here and he moved us in this spot. I firmly believe he'll take care of us. That doesn't mean there won't be some frightening moments. <laughs> there were frightening moments with all the apostles. It was frightening. When ships were wrecked and you floated around in the Mediterranean. It was frightening when you were stoned and left for dead. It was frightening when they hanged or cut other people up with a sword in the church. It was frightening when they put Peter in jail. It was frightening when they crucified you upside down. It was frightening when they poured you in a vat of boiling oil. Unless you had absolute faith in God. What about when they dropped you in lion's dens or heated the furnace seven times hotter and dumped you in and the men that dumped you in died? Kind of a frightful thing, isn't it? Come on. What do we have to fear? We've not gone through stuff like that. Yes. Have we? Some of us think, I can never do that. Well, I can tell you that you can do that. And the way that you can do that is to start living the little things every day the right way. And he says, if you will be faithful in little, you will be faithful in much. By being faithful to God daily, when the problems aren't as big, you are learning. What did he say here? By reason of habit, to know good from evil. To live and walk the right way. So then when the big tests come, you will have studied and studied and prepared, and you'll pass the big test. If you say, I don't know if I could do that, then you need to get busy ensuring that you can do that by doing the little things every day you're supposed to be doing. We all fall short of it, but that's the process. That's the procedure. Other, Rather than falling away little by little, gradually, by trusting in other things than God more and more and less in Him. See, it's a matter of direction here more than anything else. You need to be moving in the direction of more trust and faith in God rather than moving in trust and faith in the culture and society around you and their remedies. None of us have that perfect. Therefore, we should not be judgmental and uh, should show compassion and support and help. Because somewhere along the line, we have to trust God more. That's a process. If we trust Him less and less, eventually we won't trust Him at all. And then we cannot restore that which was lost. That's what He's trying to get across. Verse 7, For the earth which drinks in the rain that comes often upon it and brings forth herbs meat for them by whom it is dressed, receives blessing from God. But that which bears thorns and briars is rejected and is near to cursing, whose end is to be burned. Which is, it all depends on what kind of fruit you're producing. If we're producing the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, faith, love, patience, long-suffering, we're producing those fruits, we're in line for blessings. But if we're producing works of the flesh, lust, vanity, jelly, envy, 
greed, all those things, ego, then we'll be rejected. So it's a matter of which direction we're going. Are we falling away from faith, trust, or are we gaining in it? Verse 9, but beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. So even though we have to get down to the brass tacks here and say, look, you might have had Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses, but let's learn the weightier matters of the law here, the things that really count. Though we have to review these things because we all seem to be coming short of it, we are persuaded of better things. I can look at us here and say, you know, we still have lots of warts and pimples, but we are here to learn to serve God and walk in faith, aren't we? That's what we're here for, in spite of our shortcomings. So, we should be persuaded of better things, that we're seeking salvation, even though we still are falling short. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, we have our weak moments, we have our faults and our weaknesses, but God's not going to forget the direction of our life, even though we may stumble at times. What you have showed toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do serve. God won't forget the service we do one to another. Isn't that what Christ said? Enter into life if you love me, love your brothers. It's easy for us to say, I love God. But boy, sometimes it's hard to love our brothers and sisters, isn't it? Especially if they're not the kind of brother and sister we think they ought to be. It's easy to judge. Don't be that way. God will not forget the good that we do. If we are serving and loving and giving and helping each other, God will remember that. We desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope to the end. We should, day by day, obey God better. We should walk by faith a little better each day, trust Him a little more each day with all parts of our life. And then we will begin to have a full assurance of hope. Now, I think that hope meter goes up and down with all of us, doesn't it? Some days, if I've done pretty well in my opinion, I have more hope. And then there's some days I think, man, I'll never make it. My hope is low because I haven't walked in faith and obedience in the way that I ought to. So our attitude can fluctuate. So he says, be diligent so that you can have a full assurance of hope. God wants us to live in real hope. He doesn't want us to hope against hope. He wants us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord so that our hope becomes stronger. At the same time, our vanity and ego and self-righteousness doesn't grow, but we become humble and meek and obedient, and therefore we have a strong hope. Paul, by the time he reached the end of his life, said he was assured of salvation. He had fought a good fight. He walked the path. Now, he wasn't always that way. 
There was a time when he said, woe is me, I'm the worst sinner on earth. Things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I do. He was having trouble getting his habits all right. He was having trouble getting all of the right thought patterns established in his mind. And his hope was not very strong. But as he went on through life, he kept slogging away at it, trying every day to trust God more, to obey God more. So then by the time he reached the end, he had done those little things and grown So finally he could say, I know I'm going to make it. How many of us have reached that point? With true understanding, where we can say, I know I have it made. I doubt if there's one of us here. Now, there could be a lot of Protestants who don't understand anything. So, I got it made. I'm saved. But they're clueless. They have no idea whatever of what salvation is all about. And they're not saved. You have to understand to ever come to that point. Verse 12, that you be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Through what? Walking down the sawdust trail and accepting the Lord? No. It is a long, hard road, straight and narrow, Christ said. Difficult that is walked through faith and patience. You really trust and believe God, and you show it by the way you live, and you patiently endure all the trials, troubles, and tests that come upon you, and the temptations, and eventually, by walking that path, you inherit salvation. It is not an easy path, but the reward is worth every moment of it. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. He says to Abraham, I swear by my very life that I will do this for you. And Christ swore by his very life that he would bring us to salvation, didn't he? And he will. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. God made some physical promises to Abraham. But Abraham waited and waited and waited for to the point that there was no foreseeable way that those promises could be fulfilled. We'll get into that a little more in a later chapter. It looked impossible for God to bless Abraham in the thing that God had sworn by his own life he would do. But it happened. Abraham passed the test. Sarah passed the test. And God did for them what he said. But it looked there like it was pretty bleak. There's no way. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. For in God willing more abundantly to show to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. Well, he swore to Abraham by his own life, and he's swearing to us by an immutable counsel, confirmed 
by an oath. God has sworn to you and me just as much as he did to Abraham. And though conditions may not appear at all times to be such that that would be fulfilled in us, just as with Abraham, it eventually was. Because Abraham always continued to walk in belief. When his body and Sarah's were dead in that aspect of life. There was no life. And there was no way that they felt physically it could ever happen that they'd ever have a son. For God hadn't forgotten his promise. What does it take us to think God isn't listening, God isn't fulfilling his promise, it doesn't do any good to have faith and trust in God? When we're on our deathbed, when we're without a job, when we're with, you know, whatever it might be, what does it take to shake us? He confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. We've come to believe, haven't we, that God wasn't lying, that he literally will change us in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, into a spirit being, and we will never have the problems the doubts, the frustrations that we experience today as human beings, but we will be God. He's promised that to us. And he said, I cannot, I will not lie. And that we have strong consolation and hope. And we fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. That is our refuge. Christ is our refuge. He lived. He died without sin. He took all our sin on himself so we can hide from sin in his blood. We can take refuge in him. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God, and I dare say every one of us probably sins every day in some form or fashion, by commission or omission. But we can take refuge in his blood, and we can have a new hope every morning, as it says in Lamentations. If I knew I was going to have to pay for my sins, I might as well just give it up right now and eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow I die. Because if I'm going to trust me for salvation, you might as well forget it. If I can trust Christ and his blood for salvation, then I have hope. Because he literally can forgive my sins. Wrong attitudes. Everything bad about me, he can forgive. So we lay hold. You don't accept something like that, what do you do when you lay hold on something? You grab it. Grab that hope. Don't turn it loose. If you turn it loose, you don't believe it, you don't have any more hope, it's almost impossible to restore it. Verse 19, which hope we have is an anchor of the soul. Hope is your anchor. A boat will drift onto the reef. It'll drift onto the rocks. 
it'll drift out in the heavier waves and sink if it doesn't have an anchor to hold it in place. Faith, we must have trust in God, and we must have love for one another, which is love for God. But hope is important, too, because it is our anchor. Without hope, you drift. Without an anchor, you drift. It's hope that keeps us going. And the more we obey and serve God and make good habits, the more hope we have. So lay hold on hope. The anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters into that within the veil. The holy of holies, the veil, behind the veil. We can go directly to God because of the sacrifice of Christ and his blood and that he is a refuge for us. That's the hope we can have. So if you look at yourself, doesn't appear pretty hopeless at times. When you look at yourself honestly, which we're supposed to examine ourselves before Passover, does it seem kind of hopeless? If you really get honest with yourself, can can be pretty discouraging. So you can't keep looking at yourself. I mean, you have to examine it. You have to see where you fall short and see what you need to do. But you can't keep your eyes on yourself or conditions. That's what Peter learned out there when he jumped out of the boat and walked on water. As long as he kept his eyes, his hope in Christ, he was fine. The minute he looked at himself, the conditions, it all fell apart. Discouragement comes from looking at self and, in that sense, selfishness. Discouragement is selfishness. It's what it is. It's looking at self. If we look at God and we understand what Paul's trying to get across to these Hebrews, then we can have real, powerful hope. We keep our eyes on Christ. We keep our eyes above. We look at conditions around us and we look at ourselves. We will become discouraged, depressed. We needn't be there. Get your eyes off yourself. When you're serving somebody else, giving to someone else, helping someone else, you don't have time to sit and worry about puny little you and become depressed. Depression is easily treated. Well, I won't say easily. Depression is highly treatable. Get your mind off yourself and get it on others. And you will feel better. And you'll have stronger hope. You'll have a greater belief and faith in God. That's the answer to discouragement, selfish feelings, and depression. Get your eyes on God and other people. I mean, let's be honest. Doesn't it make sense that if you look at yourself, you're going to become depressed? That ought to be the easiest thing there is to understand. If I'm thinking about myself, I'm going to be depressed. Because there's an awful lot to be depressed about. So if you get your mind off yourself and on helping your family, your friends, your relatives, your neighbors, whoever's around you, 
then your mind is off the discouraging part. You don't have to go and take pills or give your kids pills to help their behavior. Get their minds off themselves. Get them busy in interacting with other people. With disciplining their minds and helping them control their minds. And then they don't need the pills. We need God. We need Christ. He's the pill that works. And living his life will take the discouragement away. So, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. When that anchor goes down into the rock, Christ is the rock, then our hope is strong. And which enters into that within the veil. He is the Holy of Holies. Whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Christ, or Emmanuel, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He made it, and with his help, we can make it. It's just that simple. So we have to keep our eyes on him. Well, the Jews didn't want to do that. They wanted to keep their eyes on Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, other Pharisees, or whatever. But Paul is just telling you, it's quite simple. You understand and accept what that man was, what he did, and where he is now what he has gone through and what he's done for you, and then keep your eyes centered steadfastly on him, and everything's going to work out fine. That's what it's all about, and that's how it works. That's all we have to do. I say all. (laughs) It's hard to do. It's hard to walk in faith. But in faith and patience, let's walk. And let's have our hope renewed and strengthened that we can overcome sin and self, And we can serve and give and love. And in so doing, we will ensure our salvation.